everyone. This is John Otterstead, Bobby Darren for the Scarlet Nation podcast. This is episode five, and we're going to call this one the Rutgers Roundtable Rundown. So we're going to just start at the top of the roundtable, look down, see what the fans are talking about, see what Bobby has been writing about lately and the other staff members of ScarletNation.com, and we're just going to break it down even further than we already have. So Bobby, first of all, happy 4th of July. Happy 4th. Uh, we have also something we're excited to announce this week is the launch of our Rutgers Five Bullet Blast newsletter. If you are on the scarletnation.com webpage, if you just go down on the main page of the site, just beneath the article headlines, you'll see a link to the newsletter. And the newsletter is just another way for us to slip some good Rutgers information into your day. If you're not listening to us on the our podcast app on the way to work, you can check us out on the computer at work. Or when you check your email, you can have the newsletter. The newsletter comes to you every Sunday night or thereabouts, if I can't make any promises, but that's our goal, Sunday night. And it is our remaining thoughts that are bouncing around in our head as we end one week and start the new one. So you'll see a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And we ended it this week with, I think we called it Inside Bobby's Brain, where Bobby just talks about whatever it is that's still there and he still wants to talk to you about before we move on to some new topics in the coming week. Bobby, what did you think about our first newsletter? I thought it went well, you know, and it's it's like you said, just another way to give them a little more information and, and interact a little more with the fans. Uh, there's going to be a lot going on, you know, starting in the next month with training camp and everything. So we want to get you as much information as possible all the time so that there's always something to talk about. I think there is always something to talk about, which is why I love the podcast. I don't think I get to talk to you enough. So many of our interactions are just emails and texts and all these different, you know, instant things just running from one fire to another. Can you answer this question, Bobby? Or can you take this post down that's on the message board? <laughs> and then we have this opportunity once a week just to talk and talk Rutgers sports. So let's get to it. The first thing, there's a fan on the message board on the round table. His name is Crazed RU. And he asked about the lack of development of Carlton Agadosi. In fact, I think someone else talked about it. Um, and there was that quote from your article about the undrafted Rutgers rookies, which we'll talk about that article in a bit. But it was from Cardinals head coach uh, Brian Arians, who Carlton is on the squad right now. And he said, quote, that's a big, tall, fast guy that should have had big numbers in college. And as all Rutgers fans know, Carlton never had those big numbers. Uh, he was a top 10 New Jersey prospect coming out of high school, three stars. Uh, Mike Farrell had this to say about him, quote, I think he has a unique skill set. He has great hands. He has fantastic ball skills. He can rely, excuse me, he can really position his body to make a play on the ball. That's what separates him from a lot of receivers, being able to maneuver his body and put him in position to catch the ball. And that is exactly what I saw from Carlton when he was in high school. I admit I was excited about him coming in, and I'm still excited about him as he heads off to a professional career. But I guess you have to say that he never really reached the expectations or the lofty expectations we had for him coming out of high school. Why do you think that's the case? Well, you know, he had a lot of different coordinators, a lot of different position coaches. It was adjusting to a new one each year. But they kind of had him buried behind Leonte Carew, and, and he really didn't get in when Carew was healthy and wasn't being suspended. So his time was limited. And I, I remember watching it. I, I can't remember if it was Cincinnati or Houston. They were at home and, and they threw two deep balls to Carlton in the second half. And, and it still kept them in the game. 
And he came up with two big plays. And that was like indicative of what I saw him being able to do when I first saw him as a high school recruit. You know, go deep, go up for that long ball in one-on-one coverage. He has the height advantage. He's an athletic kid. He was a good basketball player in high school. And he just, you know, you can't teach size. But I think the problem was he kind of you know, for whatever reason, got buried down on that depth chart. And it seemed like the coaching staff just ignored him and were going with Leonte Carew and they weren't utilizing him in different positions. Now you could go through coordinator after coordinator, position coach after position coach. I don't know if they were here long enough to, uh, you know, really develop him for those full four years. It was like a revolving door. So I think that played a part in it. And it was just, you know, Bad timing. He was in the wrong spot at the wrong time behind Leonte Carew. Now, you could look to the coaching staff and say, look, they should have put him somewhere else because if you have a head coach in the National Football League saying this about him, it has to point the finger of blame back to the coaching staff. Although he could say a lot now in preseason, but perhaps Carlton will have a great career once the game starts, and perhaps maybe they'll see what the other offensive coordinators saw during his stint at Rutgers. And, you know, maybe there is some hole somewhere in his game that makes it you know difficult to use him in the right spots on game day yeah and you know he wasn't perfect I've seen scrimmages where he caught nine ten passes and then I've seen where he didn't catch any um I've seen him miss some easy catches you know run some wrong routes but I don't think it was enough to really just write him off and and bury him on the depth chart I think the job of a coach is to get the most out of your players. And when you have a player with that ceiling and you can't get that player to that ceiling or even near that ceiling, uh, you failed as a coach, in my opinion. Now, we took that quote from your article about the Rutgers rookies who have a chance to make an NFL roster. And you highlighted four guys in that piece, Carlton Agadosi, Anthony Chaffee, Andre Patton, and Chris Muller. We talked a bit about Agadosi. But I want to go down the other three guys and just get your sense of how they did as players at Rockers and what their prospects are for continuing. So we'll start off with Chaffee, uh, defensive back over on the Raiders right now. Um, there's a quote that I pulled out of the piece from Will Reeve Jr. of USA Today. He said, quote, while he won't garner much fanfare, Chaffee is without question a subtle beast for this new look off at Oakland defense. Um, what do you think about that? You know, I always thought that Anthony had a lot of potential. Um, I think maybe now in the NFL, he might be buying in a little more. You have to look back at the flood era. I hate to bring him up again, but, you know, it, it wasn't as disciplined. Guys were not maybe as focused as they could have been under a stricter regime. So maybe he didn't excel like he could have at the college level. And now at the pro level, you know, he's all in. But I think once again, it comes back to the coaching. And Anthony was always a fast kid. I thought he was out of position early in his career and should have always been a safety. Um, You know, even in last year, I would even try him on offense a little bit uh, because Rutgers was so depleted with playmakers. Uh, The kid is just fast. And I I don't think he was utilized correctly. Uh, I think he should have been a safety from day one. And I think you're starting to see his progression at the next level because of you know, faults in the coaching game during the the flood area. I'm not ready to 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 take one year with Ash and say, oh, they messed him up for this or that or the other reason because they kind of just jumped into the fray really late. So um, I think the development is a you know multi year thing, and I I don't know that that coaching staff got the most out of a lot of those guys. Yeah, I think Chaffee's a good kid, a hard worker, and I'll be rooting for him as he tries things out at the next level. 
So let's take a look next to Andre Patton, who's with the Chargers, Rutgers wide receiver. What do you think about him? You know, I, I really like Andre. I thought, um, you know, personally and as a player, I, I thought he was a great athlete. Uh, for some reason, you know, he never put up the numbers that, that we expected at, when he was a recruit. He had some injury issues, but, you know, the offense was a mess. Um, but, you know, he's a very good athlete, another good basketball player, and he's getting a shot out there. He's going to have to beat out a couple guys at that receiver position, but just a very good athlete and another guy who did not reach the ceiling of his potential while he was at Rutgers. Now, I don't want to say anything bad about Chris Muller because I think he's a great player. And actually, perhaps some of the fanfare that came about early on when he was a high school player stemmed from the fact that he showed up to the sophomore combines with a full beard. <laughs> so when you're that age and you're six foot five or whatever he was at the time and full beard, he was a man. I, I felt like I was a kid talking to him. I thought he should have been interviewing me instead of me interviewing him. Um, you know, what... It, what did you what did you make of his career? I thought he did well. I, I have obviously he's he made it to the next level. Uh, I might have thought that we would be talking about him if, in an even more uh, I don't know a, a greater way. I, I think my, my expectations probably surpassed most people on the message board because I used to go to all the national underclassmen combines and I'd see him play and I'd say, my God, this is the kind of guy that Rutgers never gets. And then when they got him, I was expecting perhaps I put expectations that were too high on him. Yeah, well, he was an Army All-American, four-star kid, so so the potential was there, and he was always a strong kid. Chris had, I believe it was 34 reps at Pro Day on a 225-pound bench press, just always one of the strongest kids on the team, and for, for whatever reason, he didn't turn into an All-Big Ten kid, started 49 straight games, which is no small feat, but again, you have to come back to the coaching turnover, the, uh, you know, the offensive line coaching there, um, you know, you have to put the finger of blame back on flood for the development. Cause Chris is a talented kid. He's a strong kid. He's getting a chance now. Um, things didn't work out with the Colts as soon as he signed, but then as soon as he became a, a free agent again, the Denver came in and, and gobbled him up. So, um, I'm pulling for him too. I, I always thought he had a lot of potential and, and was a, a decent Rutgers player. But again, I don't know that he had reached his full potential while here. That theme of all the different offensive coordinators in the past few years, I don't think we could stress that enough because the more I think about it on my own, and then when I sit back here and hear you talking about it, I don't know if you could really assess anyone's play over the course of the flood regime adequately, given the fact of all the turnover they've had and the fact that they were always learning a new playbook. Yeah, well, think about it. You learn a playbook, you get comfortable with it, then all of a sudden you have to relearn a new one, get comfortable with that. And by the time that happens, you're changing again. So, uh, you know, little nuances change here and there. And, you know, in the O-line, it's tougher than people think. But um, that changeover and that revolving door definitely contribute to a lack of development among a lot of players. Now, our next question comes from a message board user named Vascos. He pointed it to the recent flurry of recruits. Anyone who's been following the website, scarletnation.com, over the past few weeks knows that the month of June was very good to Rutgers. They started the recruiting season slow, and which is crazy to think that not filling your class uh, in April and May would be considered slow. But Rutgers um, you know, didn't get off to a great start, which is understandable considering the slow, the poor season they had last year. But really, the month of June was good to them. A lot of action um, in the commitment front. And he just asked whether Rutgers is going to go up in the rankings after this flurry of commits. 
Um, you had mentioned that the, the recruiting class is top heavy with three star players. And, but as we know, there are a ton of three stars nationally and not all are created equally. I liked when you, when you mentioned that because you look down that recruiting list and I mean, there's a couple of two stars in there, interesting guys, but you go three star right down the line, which I like to see those three stars. But you mentioned there's a difference within that huge group of three stars nationally. There is a pretty big difference top to bottom, which Rivals does um, try to showcase. They have the, the the numerical rating within there, the 5.6s, the 5.7s. Um, and then you ended that with a, what I thought was an interesting quote. You said, the bottom line is what kind of three stars you have. Exactly. So I'm going to ask you right now, what kind of three stars does Rutgers have? And then getting back to the original poster's question there um, – you know, is is there a chance that you'll see some movement in this recruiting class? Well, one of the reasons I think it'll be lower is because it's a smaller class. So the the rivals rankings, you know, if you have 30 commits and they're all three stars and another team has 20 commits, the 31 is naturally going to be higher. Does it mean all those guys are better? No. But the way they're skewed, I think some fans might get the wrong perspective on it. But I think Rutgers has some quality three stars in the class, and I mentioned time and again, I think that Zahir Lacewell and Isaiah Pacheco are definitely four-star star caliber players. Uh, Jalen Chapman's another one. He's a little on the shorter side for a quarterback. Richie saw him the one day at the Rutgers camp when uh, he was leaving on his trip, and he didn't look, you know, more than six foot, which, you know, there's a lot of measurables uh, among the evaluation period and, and with quarterbacks, if, if you're not six, five, you don't get the four star billing. I mean, Arthur Sitkowski was a four star quarterback. He had offers before he even started a high school game because he was six, five and he had the arm. So, you know, you really have to put it in perspective. And in terms of the three star, you know, I, I was thinking about that when, when someone asked the question today and I looked into it and Muhammad Sanu was ranked a 5.5 three-star, just as Dante Ayers was. Now, a lot of people know who Muhammad Sanu is, you know, Rutgers player, just in the Super Bowl, NFL guy, going on to have a great career. Dante Ayers never played it down. I don't even think he played in college. He transferred before one year was up out of Rutgers, went to Towson, where he was, I think, the fourth-string running back. So, in the rankings, you know, those guys might be the same, and, and you put them alongside one another, and, and they give you that national ranking, but there's a tremendous difference between Dante Ayers and Mohamed Sanu. You know, I was going to jump to a related question, because A Learner, A-L-E-R-N-E-R, another poster from the Roundtable Message Board, had asked about most likely candidates to move up. Not So we, before, I was really angling more towards the recruiting class, and you kind of brought it back to the players, and which I understand why you did that. And he wanted to know which guys are most likely to move up. And when you responded to that on the message board, you talked about how some guys, um, such as Kasson Abraham, they're not showcased on the field in a way that would probably get them the attention that would catch the um, the eye of someone like Mike Farrell, Rivals.com, National Recruiting Analyst. Uh, can you comment a little bit on that? Maybe if you want to swing back and mention some guys who you think might move up, that'd be great. But also just talk about what people have to do at this point in their senior season to get bumped up? Because that's a question we get asked all the time. People are waiting, staring at their computers sometimes, wanting to see those numbers t- you know, tick up a little bit so that Rutgers could get a little bit more national attention. 
Well, a guy like Kassan Abraham, he plays a cover too, a defensive back at Erasmus Hall in Brooklyn. And, you know, national recruiters aren't, uh, analysts aren't spending every weekend, you know, watching those games and evaluating those guys, especially in the senior year. But he doesn't have the chance to showcase the talents of, say, a guy who carries the ball 25 times a game does. Now, does that mean he's not going to be successful at the next level? No, but you know, the, he just doesn't have the same tape to look at. So the the, the rankings, you know, the, the analysts want it to be sexy. They want it to have that guy with, you know, the 40 touchdowns. Yeah, we're going to boost his rankings. But you have to sometimes look deeper into that evaluation process and, and envision what these kids can be and, and look at, you know, their abilities and, and look at the context of the situation as well. Look at a guy like Deion Jennings out of Timber Creek. He was 5'10 last year as a junior, shot up to 6'1" has very good cover skills. He's a two-star now, but after this season, I think you'll see him shoot up. And he's at a program that gets a lot of recruiting attention. So if he has a decent season, he should be able to boost up nicely in the recruiting rankings. But then also you look at Timber Creek and they blow a lot of teams away. Uh, some teams might not even throw at him during the course of a game. So how much film does he have? Uh, you have to look, bet- uh, you know, beyond, you know, those those few highlight clips and, and see what kind of player is really out there. And I think that camp season and the combines is really great for an evaluative tool to really get a gauge on what kind of players these are and what kind of players they can evolve to be at the college level. Often when I go off to see a game and someone will say, hey, how did this guy look? And we're talking about high school games, that is. And I think the hardest one for me to come back and talk to someone about is the corner position because, as you mentioned before, sometimes if you have a stud corner, they're not going to throw towards him. And you can go the entire game and you know you can't really think of much that he did correct or not even correct, like to really stand out, but obviously nothing that he did wrong either. And um, also along those same lines, I wanted to comment on people like Mohamed Sanu, who played out of position in high school. He played quarterback. Um Isaiah Pacheco, he plays quarterback at high school. So these are guys who, if they were playing their natural position, could put up some tape that would probably attract high school, I mean, excuse me, college recruiters uh, in greater numbers, but because of the needs of their high school team. And I think we see this more um, with the less successful teams or the, the smaller high schools. You often have these stud players playing positions that are not their natural positions. Right. And, you know, the old adage is your your best player is going to be your quarterback. So you have guys doing a lot of different things. And, and there's even guys that play a position and college recruiters that might like them will tell them they can play that position just to get them there. So then they get to the college level and they have to relearn a whole new position. People are wondering why they're not contributing as a true freshman. There's a lot that goes into it. But I completely agree with the corner position as well. I went to uh, scout Eli Apple one time who turned out to be a first round pick and they were playing uh, Paul the Sixth. He got beat on a long play by a guy named Zach Grant, who was a, a, a very good prospect, was lightning quick, but had some issues off the field, so never turned into uh, a D1 player. But he beat him on a long pass because Eli turned the wrong way. So you look at that one play and you say, well, he gave up an 80-yard pass to this kid. But you know, in the context of the situation, they didn't throw at him the rest of the game. And you can't take that one play where he made one wrong turn and, and really, you know, demote the kid. I think that's why you need to really evaluate the whole body of work. Now, speaking of someone who has an interesting body of work is I hear Lacewell, a three-star. We have him listed as a quote-unquote athlete um, in this incoming recruiting class. 
if you ask him face-to-face what position he's going to play, he'll say wide receiver. And I, in fact, I've kind of seen him get a little, uh, you know, concerned or to put it – yeah, I guess that's a good word for it – if someone suggests that he'll play somewhere else. But you saw him play linebacker, and I believe you said that he had some of the best tape you've seen this year at that position. I wonder if that skews recruiting rankings um, in some way because I know R- Rivals has him as three-star. Uh, Scout has him as four-star. Everyone thinks he's a good player. He has offers. He's There's no concern about his ability to contribute at the next level. But do you think sometimes when that player wants to play one position and the college coaches are thinking another, do you think that skews the rankings at all? Or uh, even the, the, the quality of the offers that he receives? I don't think it does because I think when you're an athlete, it ups your value because if it doesn't work out at one position, there's always an alternative. you know. And it's funny you say that the, the – Kids will want to play one position. Greg Seattle told us after practice once with the microphones off and everything, he said, I'll tell the kid he can play both ways, you know, because at that time in recruiting, they kind of tell the kids what they want to hear. But I, I think it actually adds value. In my opinion, in my evaluations, I will rank a kid a little higher if he can play both sides of the football because if it, he just becomes a more valuable commodity. Take a look at a kid like Tim Barrow. Didn't have a lot of attention, but could play wide receiver or defensive back, a very underrated kid, and he brings that versatility. So if they wind up getting, you know, maybe they get a, a couple grad transfers next year and, and they need a wide receiver because somebody goes down, this is a guy that can go to the other side of the ball. And I think that's tremendous value. Uh, that's of tremendous value. Now, there's one question that keeps coming up over and over and over again. In fact, I think we even talked about it on this podcast a couple episodes ago. And that's the position of quarterback. And everyone is just trying to crawl inside new offensive coordinator Jerry Kill's mind and get a sense of what he's looking for. Because if you see Kyle Boland coming in, pro-style quarterback, you have Gio, who is, a, I guess, a bit more of a dual threat, particularly when he's healthy. We saw at the beginning of last season, he really has some wheels when he could use them. The Recruits that they that Kill has gone after, as I guess it's been a little bit of a mixed bag. We'll hear about a pro style player one week and a dual threat the next. And I guess for me, that's one of the biggest question marks heading into this season: what he's going to use, but ultimately what he's looking for in the future. Can you comment a bit on that? I think what they're looking for in the future is a guy that can do both, but they're not going to sacrifice passing for a guy who can really run because. The ability to throw the football opens up the running game. You know, if, if a guy can't throw, then you can stack the box against you and spy you, do all kinds of things to mix up their, their schemes to, to, you know, contain that guy. But I think it, they're going to look for that dual threat. Kyle Bolin is not a typical dual threat. And I think in this quarterback competition, it's going to be they're going to be looking at who the best passer is and will be willing to maybe sacrifice some uh, – ability to run the football for a guy who can really put the ball on the money. So I don't think, and also you have to remember that during training camp, these quarterbacks don't get hit. So there's no true evaluation of their running abilities. I mean, you can kind of prognosticate what they're going to do, but they don't get hit. So you can't see Geo bounce off of three guys and then spin out and, and run for 40 yards. So I think it's going to come down to who commands the offense better, uh, who makes the quicker, better reads, and, and basically who's a better passer. Well, the conversation has also turned quite frequently to the offensive line, which had some losses this past season. We were talking about one of those, Chris Muller. Uh, we have two posters who are basically – 
swimming around the same waters with questions. His one guy's name is Galconda. Another guy is which religion is right. And Galconda was saying, quote, the comments I'm reading lead me to think the O-line isn't very good right now. Do you believe the current projected starters will even be competitive against Big Ten teams? What do you think? I, I think they'll come along uh, decently. They, you know, it looks like it's almost set in that right guard position. Looks like I'm thinking it's going to be a battle between Marcus Zach Applefield and Zach Vaneski. Then you have Jonah Jackson at center, first year guy, but very smart guy, very very uh, you know cerebral player, and that really helps at the center position because they have to make a lot of checks and calls. And, and I think he's going to adjust well there. You have uh, Kamal Seymour who's developing. It's still a question mark because he still you know doesn't have that body of work. But um, to to recall. Uh, Dorian Miller should be stalwarts this year. I, I, as long as they stay healthy, I think uh, they they could they could put together a decent run. Now the whole season, I think not the whole season, but the offensive performance, a lot of it's going to hinge on that offensive line. I've said it time and again. If they can't block, it doesn't matter who's playing quarterback. It doesn't matter who's running the football. You're going to have to find a way to control the trenches. So it's going to be a big part of the season. Keeping them healthy, there's not a lot of depth there. You know, it's going to be like kind of the next man in. If somebody goes down, it's not going to be a traditional, all right, the right tackle goes down, the backup right tackle will go in. So there's going to be some mixing and matching. But I, I think they have a chance to be to be decent. Um, it remains to be seen if that will happen. Uh, but like I said, that is, to me, the key to the whole offense. You wrote a piece, the top five departures. I refer- referenced it earlier. Two of those are offensive linemen. I want to go down the list from number five down to number one. And of course, anyone who wants to read it can just go to scarletnation.com and it should still be on the front page. Otherwise, you could just do a quick search for it. But Bobby, just give me your quick thoughts on these five departing people. And then I'm going to ask you the big question at the end, you know, how much overall impact is their departure going to make on the team? So let's start with running back Justin Goodwin. You know, I, I think they're stacked at running back. I don't think that's really going to hurt them at all. Justin had his best year last year. I was surprised at how well he ran up the middle. I always, you know, kind of categorized him as a open field type of guy. But he had a good year last year, but I, I don't think they're going to miss him. All right. So we go down to number four, Derek Nelson, center. I think it's going to be a push when it comes down to it. Like I said earlier, Jonah Jackson is a smart player. I think when he grasps all the concepts, he, he might even be better at making checks than Derek was. Uh, I think that one at the end of the season is probably going to be a push. I'm, I'm pretty high on Jonah, and, and I, I think he's going to uh, even it out. I don't think that one will be a huge loss. Jonah Jackson's one of those cases where I'd love to be wrong. I wasn't too excited about that pickup when he was in high school. But I guess I am wrong, or at least it's it's trending that way. You know, he wasn't a, wasn't a highly touted recruit, and I thought his film was okay. I wasn't blown away by him. I got to know Jonah, and so I I, I like him. So I, I you know maybe that skewed my my uh, evaluation. I you know kind of was more hopeful that he would do well because he's a great kid. But um, he had some tools there, and you know during that time, Flood's evaluations were always questionable, so you had to kind of tread lightly. But he's turned out to be a, a promising young player. All right, number three, the big guy, Darius Hamilton. You know, Darius was kind of uh, just a warrior out there. His knees were, were were pretty bad last year, and and we never really saw what he was fully capable of because of those injuries. And and he was kind of a guy that was a tweener, wasn't a defensive end, wasn't a defensive tackle. 
but was just a, a great leader, was the heart and soul of that defensive line, uh, just a guy that you like to have in your locker room. And um, I think that's where he'll be missed a lot. Right. Despite all those injuries, in fact, sometimes you'd forget about him because over the past few years, you know, Rutgers had to do without him while he was on the sidelines. But he did still manage to get 56 tackles last year. Yeah, and I was surprised when I looked that number up and wrote that piece. I was surprised he had that many because I didn't think he was a huge factor in some of the games. And I think this year they can have some guys that will step in and be able to equal the job that he did last year. Now, once again, he was you know handicapped with some bad knees, but it was just a great leader. And I think that's where I place a lot of value on him. Now, we already talked about Chris Muller. He checks in at number two on your list. So let's jump right over him, and we'll get to number one, defensive end Julian Pinnock's Odrick. You know, he was the best pass rusher last year, hands down. Uh, a guy who was just a high motor, relentless work ethic. Uh, another great leader was another, you know, lunch pail, uh, great heart and soul defense type of guy. Uh, he's a guy you'll miss in your locker room as well. But with Kamoko Ture coming back, if he has the year that everyone believes he's capable of having, he might quickly erase, you know, that that vacancy that JPO left. But you know, having JPO and, and Kamoko on each corner would have been a, a nice a nice set as well. But um, I, I definitely think he brings a lot of intangibles that will be missed as well, and another great kid as well. Well, this is the big question that comes at the end of it: How much will these guys be missed? You know, I've done this article numerous times when we do this countdown the camp series. <clears throat> Excuse me. But this is the first time I really, you know, had to look and be like, wow, who did who are they really going to miss? Sometimes I could go 10 deep on them, but it's I think this team is really going to be better this year because they're not losing a lot of guys that are irreplaceable. You know, when you lose a Muhammad Sanu, you say where where is this going to come from, you know? Uh I don't think they they lost that this year. They lost a few guys that are, you know, lunch pail type guys. But, you know, it's not going to be to the point where they're losing games because these guys are gone. The other thing is, you know, sometimes you, I'm listening to college sports radio and I'm hearing about what other teams are losing. And they'll go five deep, ten deep, and they're all NFL caliber guys. And you think to yourself, my gosh, Rutgers would kill to have, you know, one or two of these draft picks on the team. And that's just a daily or, excuse me, annual occurrence for a team like Ohio State. It just shows you how much further Rutgers has to get before they could really be considered uh, on par with some of those teams, particularly the teams that write in their own division, like Ohio State and Michigan. I mean, they're, these are the best, some of the best teams in college football. So uh, there was a bit of a slip there, you know, with the flood era and, you know, Rutgers wasn't far away from going to the uh, what was it, the Sugar Bowl or the Orange Bowl they would have went to if they beat Louisville. Uh, you know, they're, they're one score away from that or one penalty away from going there. And you see the downward trajectory since then. But the competition has increased immensely. You're playing Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, even Michigan State, even though they're down. You know, I don't know how long they're going to be down for. You have a lot of competition every year. You're out of conference games now have to be easy guys because it's so tough within the Big Ten that, um, you know, they, they really have to make up some ground, but it's going to take a while. And that's why this is not an overnight fix. It's going to take time to build depth, too. Even when you get good starters, guys get banged up over the course of the year. You lose a guy here, you lose a guy there. So that depth takes a lot of time to build. 
Now, one of my favorite features on the Roundtable message board is actually something brought to us by one of our longtime message board users. He goes by the name Jellyman, and he is known for his super long, super thorough, filled with facts, stats, you name it, analysis of – often we'll do pre-games, he'll do post-games, he'll do everything. He doesn't post as much as he did earlier, um, you know, earlier in our tenure running the website, but when he does, they're great. And one of the pieces that he posts on the message board is a one titled Reasons to Fear, Reasons to Hope. Now, we don't have one for him yet. He'll have it as we get closer to game time. But in his pieces, he just says, hey, here are some things you should fear heading into this game. Here are some things that should give you hope heading into this game. So heading into a new season, I want to ask the same question to you. And I know you break down the season 500 different ways leading up to the first game. So I'm not going to ask you to go into great depth, but I want you to pick one thing, one reason to fear, one reason to hope that this is going to be a breakout season for Rutgers. So let's start with the fear piece first and then end on a on a great note. So what does Rutgers have to fear as they head into that first game of the season? I'm going to say the depth. I, you know, we just talked about it and these other teams are two, three deep with guys that you had said are highly touted recruits and Rutgers isn't there yet. So that might come back to hurt them quite a bit down the stretch because let's face it, they're going to play some tough teams as the season moves on. And that depth could really come back to hurt them. What I mean by fearing that is your starters in game nine might not be who you would, you know, hope they would be at the beginning of the season. All right. So now let's move on to the reason to hope. Heading into this second season of the Chris Ash tenure, what could give you some hope that Rutgers is going to put a better product on the field this year? You know, I hate to be redundant, but you have to go with Jerry Kill on the offense. They've never had a coordinator of that marquee. And I think he's just going to be able to do a lot of good things. Last year was a disaster. I'm not going to go into that. There's more playmakers. There's better quarterbacks. I, I just think it's all around set up for more success. And if you have a coach that can kind of link them all together and play to what strengths they have, you're going to see a better offensive product. And that's better for the fans too, because let's face it, it's more fun to watch football with an exciting offense. Even when Rutgers was was winning during the Shiano era, there were some games that were tough to watch from an offensive perspective. You know, I remember one game that they won on a Blair Bind safety against uh, Connecticut when the kicker missed a couple kicks. I think it was 12 to 10. So it was a win, but it was tough to watch from an offensive standpoint. But I think that Jerry Kill is going to try and reinvigorate this offense. And I'm curious to see what he brings to the table. Everybody who speaks about him speaks of him very, very highly. So I think it'll be fun to watch how he mixes up the offense. Now, I love that you are high on my man, Jerry Kill. But I have to say, you, you frequently when we have these conversations, you say that they've never had an offensive coordinator of that level before. But are you overlooking Fridge? Well, I mean – you had Fridge for one year, yes, and I don't mean to to downplay him or downgrade him, but you know this guy is a former Big Ten Coach of the Year, and he looks like he's going to be here for for a little longer. And, and let's face it, Fridge had some more players to work with when he came in. I, I think that was that was a perfect. Now, Fridge was an ACC Coach of the Year too. Yeah. I have to keep point counterpoint here. All right, all right. Had a good thing going, but <laughs> I think you say this though because let's face it, Rutgers. Like they had fridge for one year, the expectation is almost you. 
it's almost unfathomable because Rutgers fans are just used to losing their coordinator after a year or two. And that shouldn't be the case. And that isn't the case in many other places. So supposing that Rutgers has Jerry Kill for the near future, a few years out, I guess that would make him the uh, the most you know highly acclaimed offensive coordinator that Rutgers has had. Right. And, and, you know, I think that, that uh, Gary Nova deserves a lot of credit for that. You know, Fridge helped him along the way, but I, I think Gary had more potential than a lot of people saw. And, and I think that really came to light after he left and, and you know, the last few years of struggles at the quarterback position. But I, I think he was a big key in that season as well. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to end. I just want to tell everybody out there that there's one place that you can find us every single day. It's on the Roundtable Premium Message Board at scarletnation.com. When you go on there, or if you go onto our free message board, because we have a free football and a free basketball board that anyone can register and use. If you have a question for us, ask it. We'll bring it right onto the podcast if we can, if we have time for it. We have some great topics coming up, some previews of the upcoming season. We're going to do a piece, an overview of the entire Rutgers athletic department. I have a special guest coming in. And I'm also cooking up something called How to Be a Rutgers Superfan. And we're going to talk to people throughout the Rutgers fandom out there and just get their insight on what it takes to take your Rutgers fan game to the next level. So on behalf of Bobby Darren and myself and the rest of the crew here at ScarletNation.com, we want to wish you a wonderful end of the week.